Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is a genius of audio and sound design. He operates the sound studio Exile Sound. He's worked on Call of Duty, Guitar Hero, and of course, Metroid Prime 1 and 2. Here's the one and only Clark Wynn. How are you doing? Hey, Reese. How are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for taking the time out. I know you're a very busy man, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad I got you on your day off. <laughs> Um, so the first question I wanted to ask was just in regards to Metroid Prime, as opposed to some of the other stuff you've done in terms of the sound design. So like, say with Call of Duty and Guitar Hero, you actually have something to draw from in terms of realistic elements, right? As opposed to Metroid Prime, which is quite science fiction-y. So mm -hmm. there's nothing to really draw from that's in reality. So how do you actually decide how you're going to come up with the sound design for that? So in a game like Prime specifically, I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose we'll we'll start off with just Prime uh, specifically. What was what was your approach to it? Yeah, like well, with Prime, I was very much inspired by first of all Metroid and Super Metroid, mm. and really wanted to keep that sort of lineage of how those games sounded and sort of take that sound and sort of modernize it. So it sounded good for for modern audiences. Um, but as far as influences, um, there are really three things that I was inspired by in that project. And the, the number one was the uh, the movie Apocalypse Now. If you could think of that, the opening scene with the the napalm blast. Mm. And this is the end from the doors playing. You hear this helicopter flying by. And it's like this this woof woof sound, and for the longest time I thought that was like a real chopper sound that they used. They just slowed it down, but it um, it's actually a synthesizer that they used. Uh -huh. And it blew my mind when I found that out. And it has this sort of ominous, kind of otherworldly quality that fits the the surreal narrative of the movie really well. And when I think about Prime, like the, the idea of using synthesis as a basis of creating sounds to get that kind of otherworldly feel. Um, I think I was very much influenced by my movies like Apocalypse Now that did these unorthodox approaches to the to the audio. Right. Um, another, another big influence, um, this is a little embarrassing, but um, a lot of, uh, if you look at Japanese television at that time, super Japanese science fiction, tokusatsu type stuff, a lot of those, the sound design of those shows was a big influence. Um, and compare, if you compare that to Western television, where you have like a, a character who jumps up and he jumps up in the air and flies around, a typical sound designer would cover that with like a wind gust or something like that. But in Japanese sh shows, they like um, they, they take a more stylized approach. And they'll break out like the Yamaha DX7 and do like a filter sweep and add some frequency modulation and then add a bunch of crazy delays to it. So you get this really stylized whoosh instead of like your, your boring uh, wind, gu wind gust. Um, so that stylized approach to sound design was also a big, big influence on me on Prime. Right. Oh. And, and then and the third, I think, uh, important element um, of Prime, probably, probably the most important, I think, is the, uh, at the time in the late, this is late 90s, um, there was a lot of 
sort of chest thumping that was going on with uh, game studios at the time. With they were spending hundreds of thousands of thousands of dollars on their on their uh, audio studios, studios like EA and Interplay, mm-hmm. and they were kind of bragging about how they're bringing in these Hollywood sound people to, to mix their games and putting in this Hollywood uh, sound to their games as if to say that video game audio was was doing it wrong and we're going to show people how to do it the right way. <laughs> so like, I was very much inspired by the idea of, you know, taking the role as travel and using, trying to stay don't try to avoid doing what everyone else is doing at the time and kind of pay homage almost to game audio sounds and using synthesis as a as an approach mm. instead of the Hollywood thing that was coming in vogue at the time. Right. So would you take like a, a sound effect and manipulate it a lot or would you play a note on the keyboard and do it that way? What was what was the way you'd uh, do it? Um, with Prime specifically, I was I tried to do as much with synthesis as, as I could. Mm. So like synthesizers like um, like absinthe, right. medicine, like uh, access virus. Those are like my my main synths at the time, and I tried to push that aesthetic as much as I could. And it wasn't until Prime Two that I started to to, to uh, get away from that and use more real world sources and try to make those sound as this. Sci- sci-fi as possible and synth- synthesize as possible without actually being synthesized. Right. I know uh, with the Morph Ball, you thought of an idea of magnets. Right. <laughs> was, yeah, that, was, that, was that the first thing that came to your mind when you, <laughs> when you thought of the Morph Ball or was that something that took a while before you actually came to the idea of using magne- uh, magnets as a inspiration? Yeah, that was, that, that was a good example of something that took numerous iterations to get right yeah, I think I, first, I have like literally seven or eight versions of that sound that I did before we before I came up with the idea of magnets um, I think the earliest iterations I was thinking more um, more mechanical mm. like more mechanical noises uh, as if the metro if the if the ball was a bunch of little metal plates that were sort of forming together but it sounded too um sounded too too normal too ordinary and i thought when i hit upon the idea of magnets um that that, i think that tied in with the whole aesthetic of prime being synthesized Mm. and i could generate sounds um and then process them and with the idea of magnets, you have this sort of synthetic kind of hum that I sort of sequenced uh, using a sequencer and uh, a bunch of different effects. And when I hit upon that sound and play it for designers, that was what clicked um, with the team. And I think it fit in well with the, the rest of the aesthetic of the game, which was, you know, again, using that sort of synthetic uh, tone as a basis for as, as many of the sounds as we could. So would you take like the one synth sound and then fatten it or was there multiple layers to that one sound? Um, it's a little bit of both. Um, generally speaking, because if you take a synthesized sound on its own, it's right. uh, usually pretty recognizable as a 
of synth sound. And if you really get, if you have really good ears, you can maybe even pick out the the synth that that I used. Um, so I tried to layer it as much as I could to just introduce um, some more uh, diversity in the sort in the sound sources. So it sounded a little more balanced. Um, so I think the morph ball was actually an example of something that had. That's primarily synth-based, but there are some mechanical sounds that are kind of buried in there as well. Right. And what about with the visors? I mean, because you mm-hmm. obviously over Prime 1 and 2, I mean, there's multiple different visors, like the, the Echo visor, for example, which is obviously pretty much a sound visor. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't even know how you come up with the idea of the sound you used. Yeah, that was the fun one to do because... Um, the designer who who is in charge of the sound visor, his his name is Carl Brown. He was a brilliant uh, designer at Retro. and him and I were both big fans of experimental music, and we used to go to the record store together and uh, just trade stories about what cool up becoming bands and what what CDs to get. So we were both. He was very much in tune with sound, and when he came up with the idea, um, he started showing me early pr- prototypes of. What, uh, what, this, what the Echovisor was and how it was going to tie into gameplay. Um, so from, from the very beginning, uh, we were thinking about how sound would play into that. And I just started doing different variations on that sound. Um, I was very much inspired by idea of like a sonar ping, like in a submarine. Right. Uh, but I wanted to maybe just sci-fi it up a little bit. So... That sound was very much synthesized and then processed through numerous effects. Um, and then on the uh, on the GameCube side, we also were very keen on doing some processing on the in-game sounds when you enable the visor. And the only problem was is that on the GameCube, um, the amount of the number of in-game effects were pretty limited. I think you had like a reverb and a really cheap sounding delay. Um, <laughs> so we actually got um, a VST plugin and that we liked the sound of. And it was, I think it was from like a French company. So we actually licensed the code from the format VST plugin. And we had a brilliant programmer at, at Retro, at Jim Gage, who was able to take that VST code and implement it in our game engine. And we use that to process the sounds of the in-game audio. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that's the first time that a, a VST plugin has been used on, on a console. So ah. that was pretty much how the uh, EchoVisor came about. I heard that the uh, screw attack was cut from the very first Metroid Prime. So did you did you design anything at that stage, or did you wait until the second one before you implemented any sound effects yeah i think we had talked about it at one point but it was i think pretty quickly shot down so it wasn't until the second uh game that we actually started designing uh, concepts for that right and that was another fun one to do sounds for because there wasn't really anything in the i mean there was a if i remember correctly there's a very simple sound for that in, in super metroid um, but like taking that, taking that sound and and adding, just modernizing it and synthesizing it to sound good was a, was a challenge, uh, but also a lot of fun. 
Yeah. So from the minute something is approved to be in the game, do you start working on the sound effect immediately? Or is there a bit of a time delay before that? Um, yeah, generally, I mean, it always depends on scheduling. Yeah. As much as I could, though, I always wanted to get in early on, on sound design for uh, an object or for content. Because um, I have a saying, is like, you, if you fail, you should fail often and fail early. Uh, <laughs> Fair so enough. A lot of these um, very... Uh, High-level sounds, especially for Samus, like the critical sounds, uh, we we'd go through numerous iterations on those, um, and a lot of times those early experiments are were kind of um, maybe a little embarrassing or just a part, a part of the exploration and experimentation process. But um, I think that was also key to just uh, finding out where finding out the direction. Uh, we wanted to go in and just play testing the hell out of it until it felt right. Yeah. So what would have been the the sound effect that took the longest, that went through the the most amount of iterations, oh. you think? Wow. There were a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, the pirates, the space pirates were a good example. Right. Because um, that's such a key uh, component of the history of Metroid. Of course, yeah. And I can tell you, like, like a story is we went through three different versions of the Pirates. Um, the first version uh, was based originally on, on Russian. Um, Russian? So I wanted, yeah, I wanted very much to have a language, sort of a, sort of a recognizable language uh, for the Pirates, as, as opposed to doing just basic guttural grunts. And... I had taken Russian in college. Um, oh, so nice. I kind of took Russian and reversed some of the syllables around and sort of developed kind of like a pseudo language for the pirates. So like when they would attack the player, they'd have a certain verb that they use. If the you know, if they um became aware of uh, Samus's presence, they would have like an alert kind of uh, phrase that they would use. Um but then when we recorded it and put it in the game. It sounded like Russian. <laughs> it sounded like just guys yelling some Slavic language. Uh, it just didn't work at all. Um, so then I went back to the drawing board. And for version number two, I just had to go with more of a animalistic kind of guttural uh, approach, something that was less recognizable. And I used uh, recordings of a pit bull uh, that my friend had done. And we put that in the game. I remember very distinctly um, after I put the sounds in the game, we had a meeting uh, with the team. Um, and it was like a weekly team meeting where we play the latest build. And there was the pirate sounds uh, were in this build. And people were basically started laughing at the space pirates because it was so comedic and cartoony sounding. Um, didn't sound very threatening at all. Yeah. And uh, right after that meeting, like my producer, Mike Mann, he said, oh, I think you should change the pirate sounds. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so finally, for version three, I went back to the idea of having a language uh, for the pirates. Um, and there was a programmer at uh, Retro Studios. Uh, his name was Akintunde. Um He was from, I want to say Nigeria. He'll, he'll kill me if I, get, if I get it wrong, but... He was originally from Nigeria, and he spoke uh, Yor Yorba. 
which is oh, the yeah. language there. It's very um, exotic sounding language. And so I put him in the booth and had him yell out, uh, we took these phrases in Yoruba and sort of re- reversed them and played around with the syllables until we came up with this sort of pseudo language for the parrots. And that ended up becoming the, the basis, the final version uh, for the parrots that uh, everyone liked and uh, pretty much lives on to this day. Right. So was that then just further refined for Prime 2? Yeah. That sound effect? Yeah, that, that uh, pseudo language that we developed was code basis for Prime, two, Prime 1, 2, and 3. That's so cool. That's so cool. Now, I know you worked closely with uh, Kenji Yamamoto. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like? Because from what I understand is the original soundtrack that was pitched was very different. It had like a 70s guitar sort of sound. Um, and, then it, and then it changed a lot. Is that right? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's cool that, you've, that you know about that because it's uh, not a very well-known fact. But um, the soundtrack for Prime kind of went through different iterations. Um, originally, like, we had uh, contact the band Autzecker uh, to do the soundtrack, and we even used some of their stuff as a, for one of our demo levels. Um, it would have been amazing, but Nintendo kind of pushed back on that idea mm. uh, for various reasons. But um, Kenji Yamamoto came on board, and we were all excited about that. And he actually gave us a very... Uh, early prototype track he did that was meant for the title screen and it's never been released as far as i know um, but it was very uh, different than what we would end what we ended up with the final prime soundtrack it was very guitar heavy uh like a space rock kind of thing as if oh really as if like steve Vai met sun Ra, kind of like this weird uh you know, like psychedelic almost uh spacey sounding rock thing with like guitars and solos and noodling and it was very different from what any any of us had expected um because we were really thinking more in terms of that original autector sound which is more experimental and more uh, like a darker more ominous kind of sound um so we we sent our notes back to Yamamoto-san um and he was very uh open to to working with us and getting a sound that we were looking for. And that's uh, in the second uh, delivery that he gave to us. I don't remember. I think the first thing, or I'm sorry, the second thing that he gave to us was some of the music for the Chose Ruins. And that was uh, much darker uh, and more in line with what we were thinking. And that ended up uh, being the basis for the rest of the game. Oh, so, right. So and, that was, and that was done in the last three months or so of development, wasn't it, for the soundtrack? Yeah, because we, we actually, after the idea of using Autechre got shot down, um, Nintendo came back to us and asked if we had any composers that we would consider using as an alternative. So we sent them a list of composers. Um, you know, one of whom I, re- I remember very distinctly was... Uh, Bert, who's pretty well known in the oh, uh, yes, yes. In the yep. Linux community. Um, and we sent them a list of composers we thought might work. And then it, it was months before we heard anything back from them. Um, but they eventually, they weren't too, too crazy about our, our other composers. 
Um, so it was like six months, I think, uh, before we heard back one day uh, from Nintendo asking us if they be, if we'd be interested in Yamamoto-san, uh, you know, the original Super Metroid composer. And, you know, of course we said yes, because how could you say no to that? And yeah, yeah, of course. That's uh, that's how this the story of how the music for Prime came to be. So did um, Kinji Yamamoto do much iterations once once the sound was found? Once you had settled on a sound, would he go through multiple iterations with you? Was there a lot of back and forth? Like say you'd take one track, like you talk about the Chaozo Ruins, um, but did that go through many iterations, or did it kind of stay quite similar? To its original inception, um, you know, most of the, the the stuff he delivered, uh, I think this speaks to the brilliance of uh, Yamamoto-san is that he, once he knew what we were looking for, uh, the stuff he delivered was almost always on point. Mm. Uh, it's very rare that we, I think, I don't think we ever really told him that we didn't like anything that he had delivered. So I think everything was really, really strong out of the gate. Um, so any revisions that he met, that we had gone through would usually just minor, like mixed tweaks or maybe adding some additional instrumentation to the tracks. Um, but yeah, the 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 stuff that he delivered and the stu- the, the content in the original, final product, I think, was had very few changes. Right. And did he did he send you the music with an idea of where to implement it, or was that solely on you? You'd decide where you're going to implement the music? Yeah, the um, that was something we we labored intensely for months on. It was the placement of the music. And that, I think, um, speaks a lot to, to Yamamoto-san, is like how specific he was and how particular... He wanted the music to to play in prime, um, so he would literally give us like a spreadsheet of dozens of, of music cues and how to play specifically, down to like literally the last, literally down to the second. Wow. So like after you open the door, wait two seconds and then play this music cue, or when the pirates uh, appear, wait until the last pirate is standing, then play this music cue. Um, so that went through a huge amount of iteration, like months and months, uh, before he was finally happy with uh, the music placement in Prime. Right, because you, because you, could you have multiple cues for just one scene? Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, there was like some very early uh, usage of like interactive uh, music scoring. So a, a scene would typically encompass maybe like an intro theme and then like theme for the battle and then like a theme post-battle. Um, so yeah, it was a very uh, intense process to get all of that sounding good. Wow. And uh, and I suppose Prime 2 was more of the same, just a refinement of, of one? Yeah, that was, um, I would say by Prime 2, we had the our workflow and process pretty much down. So that was uh, much less intense um, from what I remember, um, and it, I mean, it, it was still, you know, Yamamoto-san is very much a perfectionist. Um, so we had to, you know, work 
put in those extra hours to make sure that he was happy. But um, it was a much less intense experience overall than compared to Prime One. I read a story about how the day before you went gold, he made you do some changes up until what one a.m. in the morning, was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, that, that memory is pretty much burned in my brain because. <laughs> Like I had a lot of those moments in Prime One where it was just such an intense process of getting that game out the door, and and without that particular day, we were supposed to go gold, and I was expecting to come expecting to come into work and just do some bug testing and go home at six or whatever, and just uh, I thought we were done, and then I remember getting a phone call. Nine o'clock from Mr. Yamamoto, um, asking if I can make s- some changes, and I said uh, it's kind of late, but sure, I'll, I'll do what I can. And he had maybe about a dozen uh, changes he wanted to do, mostly just volume tweaks. But um, still, it was going to take me some time to make the changes and test them because we were so literally hours from going gold. And you know, went to my producer and had to make sure that he was okay with that. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders, and said, "Okay, go ahead." <laughs> so I spent uh, literally until one o'clock in the morning making all those last-minute changes for Yamamoto-san. But um, uh, I think in the end, that was a good call on his part, just to make sure everything was sounding perfect. Wow! Considering, I mean, everyone. Well, knows well that obviously during the development of Prime, it was pretty intense. I mean, the last nine months were very, very intense. A lot of 36-hour days from what I understand. But in in your case, because you're dealing with stuff that is so critical in terms of your hearing, because the longer you're, you're doing it, right, your ears get tired. So how are you, one, able to maintain that energy for so long and then ensure that the quality is not being affected because obviously you can't really take breaks, right? Because you're under such a strict deadline. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it was very much a sprint uh, to get the game done. I remember there was, and the stories are are pretty well known, but the last six months was pretty much mandatory overtime for the whole team. Mm. And we were working six, seven days a week, 12 hours a day minimum. And, you know, as audio person, you're right that, Ear fatigue is a real thing. Um, you know, the way I dealt with it was I would take, I literally take breaks throughout the day. I'd get away from the office and just go back to my apartment and take a nap for like an hour. <laughs> just uh, <laughs> keep my keep my sanity and keep my energy level. Because um, I wasn't really getting much sleep. Um, and my, my nickname at the studio was the, I was the prince of sleep deprivation because I was there so much. Um, so to help combat the ear fatigue and, and just general malaise in general, I'd go back to my apartment, take a nap for an hour and go back to work and keep doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wouldn't that mess up your whole, uh, cycle as well in terms of your sleeping pattern because of all the different naps and your, you know, the, the time you're awake versus the time you're asleep is all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I dealt with that with lots of caffeine. <laughs> Caffeine, ephedrine, and <laughs> stimulants to keep me awake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, power to you. I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. Sounds crazy. Yeah, well, 
And you have to keep in mind too, is that for a lot of us, this was uh, the, the project of a lifetime. Um, mm. And I was just always a huge, huge fan of Metroid. And being able to work on, on this project with this team, with with all my heroes at Nintendo, um, it was just a rush from beginning to end. And I think that was a big part of what, what kept me going all those hours. Mm. I mean, because you would have had interaction with Miyamoto, Sakamoto, obviously. Yeah. Um, what, were your, what was your experience with both those guys? Um, it's like working with Yoda, I think, especially when working with Miyamoto-san. Because uh, he was uh, very sage-like in his wisdom. And he had just like this ability to play through a demo level that we showed him and just key in on all the the things that that stuck out to him or that, that he thought could have been better. And it was actually kind of rare that he would comment on audio. Um, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but um, I remember one of the one of, remember one of the moments that I always remember is at the beginning of the intro level at the in the hangar. Uh, there's like this ambient tone uh, that that kind of plays in the background as you're as you after you land your your ship, and this was sort of this was one of the first things that we had shown to Nintendo as like a, a first sort of vertical slice of the game, and I wasn't sure if like the ambiences were going to really sell uh, the audio or not. Um, but I remember getting feedback from Miyamoto-san. One of the first things he said in his review was he liked the sound of that ambience in the beginning of the intro level. And when he said that, I knew that uh, I was on the right path and I didn't need to change it. So that, and that became, became a very uh, key focus, a key direction for the rest of the game. Oh, wow. And was there much, um, did you have much to do with Sakamoto? Because obviously he, he kept probably more of the lore and everything yeah. in place, making sure that it kind of fit within the overall narrative, I'd imagine. Correct. Yeah, he. Um, it was rare that he would uh, get involved with the audio. I think that was more uh, uh, Tanabe-san and yeah. uh, Yamamoto-san. So yeah, Sakamoto-san was more about keeping the, the Metroid lore and just making sure every, that the game uh, felt in line with the previous series. Yeah, because how much of EAD division handled stuff as opposed to retro? Because I know, obviously, uh, voice was part of it. They handled a lot of the voice stuff, and then you just implemented it, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, I think voice was kind of a touchy thing with with Nintendo because um, originally we had done some recordings for uh, Samus's voice. Just like more of like a, a temporary kind of placeholder uh, sound because we really want we really wanted to make sure the impacts when, when Samus took damage uh, was uh, recognizable in the gameplay. Mm. And so we we got to one of the designers uh, to do just some placeholder grunts and screams, and uh, this is how that would feel. And it was never meant as like a final audio pass. Uh, but after a few weeks after we got them in the game, uh, we heard feedback from EAD uh, about the voices. 
about Samus's voice, and they were saying it was too sexual and too sensual sounding. <laughs> um, oh, so, okay. like, they're, um, they're very, very particular about vo- vocal sounds in general. Yeah. Uh, so I was happy to let them sort of take the reins on that, and and uh, they ended up recording several actresses for uh, Samus's vocals, and we got them back a few months later. And then we ended up picking up who we, picking out the voice we thought worked best, and uh, that was pretty much all my involvement involvement with the the vocals uh, for the Prime Games. Because Jennifer Hale was the voice actress, I think, but you used a different uh, actress for the dying effect. Is that right? Right. Well, yeah. we think it's Jennifer Hale. <laughs> That's one of the things that I, if I could go back in time and tell my previous version of my earlier version of myself is you know 20 years from now uh, people are going to be asking you who recorded the voice i would tell myself please write it down <laughs> like a uh, security box so you don't forget <laughs> but like if we the, the audio director retro uh, scott peterson and i went back and listened to those recordings and it sounds to us like jennifer hale and the initials on the recordings were jh so we think it's Jennifer Hale. Um, so 90, we're 95% sure that was the actress she used. Um, and as far as the uh, the death, the death vocal, yeah, we I ended up going with a different actress because uh, I was very much using the the death sound from I think Super Metroid as a reference, and. I think the the one the, the version that I ended up choosing and the version that the whole team liked uh, was had like a higher pitch than the the Jennifer Hale version, so that was why we ended up with a different uh, version, so we can match uh, Super Metroid better. Ah, that's so fascinating, so fascinating. So, did you uh, your time at uh, Retro? How much did that influence your sound design going forward once once you left? Um, the, um, you know, I think my, my, a prime, uh, I'm sorry, a retro, the, I was very much into taking sounds and, and then mangling them until they were unrecognizable. And that was sort of like my calling card, uh, for a long time. And, but after I left, um, I ended up at the studio called Neversoft, uh, where we were doing much uh, more real world based type sounds, like things uh, things like uh, you know, Guitar Hero or uh, the game Gun or skateboarding sounds for Tony Hawk. Uh, so it was a far, far cry uh, from what we did at uh, Retro. But I think that was also a, a big part of just growing as a sound designer because um, I'd never done. Uh, that type of sound design before, like more just natural kind of real world type of sound effects. And I think making making those sounds sound fun and larger than life, I think is also a skill into and under of, of itself. Um, so I would say that the, my career at Retro and my career at Neversoft and even on games like Call of Duty um, uh, they're sort of complementary, but I wouldn't say that they were directly, didn't have a direct influence on what I was doing later. Mm. 
You have an interesting uh, analogy is well in regards to beginners because you say that beginners make the mistake of focusing too much on implementation as opposed to the actual creative sound design uh, initially. Is that because sound design itself is a lot harder to kind of learn as a skill as opposed to the actual implementation? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, in general, like I can give you an anecdote. Um, like at Neversoft, we would, uh, every summer we would hire interns and we would get roughly 250 to 300 resumes uh, for the for a sound intern position, like one intern position. Um, and by and large, what I would see in almost, like 85 to 90% of these applicants is that there is a lack of uh, lack of skill level when it came to basic audio engineering kind of skills, things like mixing, uh, things like knowing how to make a sound uh, bigger and bolder, you know, through the use of like EQ and plugins, hmm. um, and things like not, not not even getting into like creative sound design, uh, but like basic engineering principles um, that I think tend to be underemphasized in a lot of the schools uh, that you see. And those types of skills, like mixing and learning, learning like to have those golden years takes dozens and not hundreds of hours. Um, I remember like just in my, my process of becoming a sound designer when I was growing up, I would spend hundreds of hours literally just mixing and uh, making sounds. Um, and that's how I, learn to to get that creative sound design uh, part of my skill set to to sound to sound good and I think that that uh, tends to be lacking in a lot of the up and coming sound designers so I would say for anyone who's trying to get into the industry uh, I think the probably the biggest investment you can do is to spend as much time as you can uh, focusing on the creative sound design uh, work and the like the basic engineering principles. And I think that'll put you at the top of the heap uh, when it comes to applying for, for jobs in the industry. Right. Given that there's kind of hard to have a template for mixing, right? Because every sound is different. I mean, if you're in the music industry, for example, you can't mix every song the same. Um, is it, can you find good uh, learnings online? Is there any good things you can suggest online in terms of, um, channels that are good for sound sound design. Um, yeah, the one, well, the one I refer to that I got a lot of uh, good content off of is uh, the Sound Effect blog. Uh, the uh, the Sound Effect people who sell the, uh, the the Sound Library website. They have a lot of really uh, good articles uh, about sound uh, in in films and games. That's I think I find very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the uh, the podcast from Dave Pensato, who talks a lot about mixing music. But uh, there's a lot of really good uh, content there as far as tips of the tra- tricks of the trade, and just uh, how to how to mix songs in general. Because I think if you can mix a good song, it's it's still applicable to doing sound design because the, the basic principles are the same. Because you're dealing with issues like uh, fre- frequency masking. And right, docking and uh, EQ compression, all those things, uh, they they very much apply towards sound design as well. And I think the 
by and large, the best sound designers that I see uh, who are up and coming are the ones who can, are the ones who've spent a lot of time mixing. Um, I think that somehow that, that translates very well into a career in sound design. Right. I studied audio engineering as well. Um, that's partly why I'm asking about this. But I, I know one of the, the teachings that I learned is when I was mixing music is to use multiple speaker systems, mm. right? So like headphones and maybe some terrible speakers and some good speakers. Is it the same principle when you're doing sound design as well, when you're mixing sounds? You're checking them across multiple speaker systems? Oh, yeah. I think that's pretty critical um, because you have, especially in today's climate, you have different uh, monitoring, uh, different uh, consumers who are, some who are playing on headphones, some are playing on TV speakers, some are on uh, 5.1 systems. So uh, I'm constantly going back and forth between different uh, playback monitors so I can make sure that things sound good on my big speakers and my small speakers. I've heard, I'm, I'm, keen to see if your thoughts on this if you can make it sound good on terrible speakers then you're probably on the right track yeah yeah <laughs> good rule of thumb yeah uh, so how, how long does that process usually take for you when you're going through the, the the stage of trying to mix everything in terms of a sound effect over multiple uh speakers um yeah it's usually well usually my my rule of thumb is to make it get it sounding good on my my main speakers. Yeah. I use Genlux, but um, there's a lot of different speakers out there. And then I go through and ABA them on my smaller monitors, which are mix cubes. And generally, it's it's more a matter of just doing small mix tweaks and EQ to make sure things sound good on the smaller speakers. Um, so maybe I might spend another you know 15 minutes. 15 minutes to half an hour, uh, making them sound good on the on the smaller monitors, but um, it's usually pretty quick. I think I think a good sound should just naturally translate well between different speakers, and if it doesn't, um, usually means that the sound itself is probably not the right approach. Do you, from a personal preference standpoint, do you prefer going out in the field with a boom and recording sounds, or do you prefer using a keyboard and manipulating uh, sample libraries? Um, you know, if you asked me that question when I was making Prime, I would very much say that I was more into tweaking and manipulating sounds. The, but nowadays, I'm very, also very much into recording as much uh, original source material as I can. Mm. Um, so I think for, especially because there's so many great libraries out there now, and everyone's kind of using the same source. Um, as a sound designer, I think the the best one of the best things you can do is to have like your own unique recordings. Um, like the more you can do to stand out and make yourself uh, unique as a sound designer, I think just plays dividends in the final product. And I think it also helps you as far as your career. Uh, I think I've I've seen. Uh, sound designers who record their own material, uh, they generally tend to do to do better in the industry as opposed to someone who's just grabbing sounds from libraries that everyone else is using. Do you use uh, going out in the, in the field to record sounds as, as kind of a, a good excuse to go traveling as well? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, a, 
I'm a huge nut when it comes to traveling, and I, I travel overseas once or twice a year. Uh, and I'm always bringing my my recording rig with me wherever I go. Um, That's cool. So yeah, I have a, a pretty large library of personal recordings that I've done all over the world, and I uh, very often uh, refer to that when I'm working on games. Hmm. I know Tokyo is your favorite city in the world. Is there a particular reason? I've been wanting to go there. Oh, um, yeah. Tokyo is an incredible city because it's just, uh, so I can imagine New York times a thousand because it's just so vibrant yeah. and, and lively. And there's an the energy there that uh, you can't really find anywhere else. So, yeah, I would highly recommend visiting if you ever have a chance. Is that where you met uh, Kenji Yamamoto and Monaco Hamano? Did you meet them in Tokyo or was it in Kyoto? That you um, met that's them? actually in, in Kyoto. Yeah. Because um, I was living in Japan at the time and um, I had gotten a. Well, here's the, here's the story is uh, during uh, Prime 1 and Prime 2, even though we had worked really intensely together, uh, Yamamoto san and I never actually had a chance to meet in person. We'd only talked through video conferencing and email. Um, so when I, when after I moved to Japan, um, Yamamoto-san kind of reached out to me and sent me an email asking if he wanted to get together. Um, oh, that's cool. So I, I took the Shinkansen down to Kyoto and uh, met, uh, met Yamamoto-san and uh, Hamano-san. And that was like a... It's like a dream come true because, you know, he was very much like a like a hero to me growing up, mm. someone that I always looked up to. And I told him when I met him, I was like, this is a, a dream come true for me. And he told, he, and then he turned to me and said the same thing. This is like, this is a dream for me to finally meet you. And hearing that oh, from one wow. of the videos is like a pretty awesome moment, something yeah. that I'll remember. And we ended up... Uh, I ended up spend, hang, spending time, uh, spending quite a bit of time with him uh, when I was there, not just in, in Kyoto, but all around uh, Japan and uh, developing a relationship with him. So that was uh, a pretty special thing. So I imagine you can speak fluent Japanese. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I never have to get in trouble. Because how, how many languages could you speak? Because you could obviously speak J uh, Russian, Japanese, oh. English. <laughs> Chinese is like my what I grew up uh, speaking with my parents, so I guess that's my second language. Of course, Japanese yeah. is my third, and I forgot all my Russian, so I don't really count that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, going forward, what do you think? Um, in terms of Metro Prime Four, are you do you think what 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 do you think they'll do in regards to the franchise, or what would you like them to do? Um. Well, I know what I'd like them to do, whether Nintendo wants to, I guess it's another question. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's, um, I love, uh, there's a composer, uh, I'm going to butcher her name. It's uh, Hildur Guptotnir from Iceland. Uh, she's probably best known for uh, the work she did on Chernobyl, the, the TV miniseries. Ah, yes, yes. And that soundtrack uh, blew me away when I heard that because it's like this, it blurs the line between music and sound design. It's almost like music concrete. And where you're watching a scene and you hear this incredible 
otherworldly soundtrack that that kind of blurs in with with the sound design of the, the scene and the two very much play off of each other and i thought like how cool would it be if if Metroid could go back to some of those original roots of uh, uh, from Metroid, the first game with the Hip Tanaka soundtrack, and do like an, uh, doing like a music concrete type score that was very experimental, that blurred, blurred the line between sound design and music. So like maybe going to going to a world where where the where the music is all like recordings of like rocks <laughs> broken down and, and processed and Maybe even like the the sound design could maybe even uh, be used as uh, source material for the for the composer to sort of break down those boundaries between sound design and music. I think that's a, a very interesting area. Uh, it's a very unexplored area in games uh, that, that I think would fit the Metroid uh, series very well. Well, I kind of feel like Metroid Prime does it. Uh as well right i mean some of the phase on stuff specifically you can't really tell if it's sound yeah. or if it's music exactly yeah that was, was that was that more kinji or did you have a part to play in that and trying to kind of uh blurring the line yeah well yeah i think um when i heard yamamoto-san's uh interpretation of the the phase on uh area in the mines um I definitely wanted to make sure that the the sounds of the actual phase on would would uh, sit well with the music. So after uh, Ken uh, Yamoto-san did his pass on the music, I actually went back uh, to the phase on sound and tweaked the pitch uh, and just made sure that the two kind of sat well in the mix. Um, so there there were definitely moments like that where we uh, went back and forth with the music and the sound design to get them to to play nice together and. and coexist in the same space how do you get that balance to sound right though so say like if you fire a missile and there's a sound effect and you've got music playing in the background that music might be catered and it might fit within a particular spectrum of equalization right and and then like you go into another area and the music's different so how are you ensuring that say the sound effect still pierces through the music and it doesn't get uh all phased out and muddy in the mix yeah that's a good question because that's something we're, we we uh, are very challenged i think that's a big challenge in game mixing um because we can't really predict what's going on at any one time um so we have to rely on systems uh like ducking or uh, eq masking to try and get these sounds to to sit well in the mix and it was a particular ch- challenge in games like like prime because we didn't have uh, those types of systems at the time that we do now. Mm. Um, so everything was designed very much uh, piecemeal uh, to sort of coexist in the mix well. So I would have to do things like EQing uh, background sounds to make sure that there was space in the mix for like the weapons. And so it was a very long and labor-intensive process of EQing everything to make sure that things sat well in the mix. Um, and even to this day, like when I listen to Prime, I still feel like it's kind of a, there's a, there's a little bit of muddiness in the mix, um, which you don't, which, which was a result of not having anything like ducking. Mm. Um, but at the same time, 
because there is such a focus on on the low mids on that in the mix. If you listen to it, um, there's like this kind of like this ominous, dark and sinister tone uh, to that mix, which surprised me after I heard it for after I heard it for the first time in like 15 years. Um, so I mean that that sound of all these sounds overlapping and all the frequency masking and prime. That's even though it's somewhat somewhat of a negative. Um, I think it also contributed to the to the dark sound of that that game. Yeah, well, it works. Are you able to play any game or listen to any music and not instantly start uh, taking in the audio and critiquing it and being like, oh, I would have done this or I would have, or I shouldn't, oh. you shouldn't have done this? Are you able to just in, embrace it as a, as a listener or do you automatically go into work mode and start critiquing everything? Yeah, I... It's, I automatically go into critique mode. <laughs> I guess, and I... I literally like have a laptop next to me when I'm playing games and making notes of what I would, what I thought worked and what I thought could be better. And it's just like a, it's like research is what I call it. Um, it's like, you want to continually, I want to continually be inspired and growing as a sound designer and just learning from what other games are doing right and wrong. Um, so it's just a natural part of, uh, the process for me now. So unfortunately, no, I can't play games just as a casual gamer. <laughs> I know you're a huge uh, lover of film as well, of cinema. Is that the same process? Like you go into a cinema and you listen to it with the <laughs> with the massive speakers and are you able to just sit there and take it in or are you listening to everything while yeah. that's going on? It's a little better for get, for film, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's... Yeah, like I'm always being inspired by all the things around me, um, especially when it comes to sound design and film and, and games. So um, whenever I hear something that sounds really cool in a movie, uh, I'll make a mental note of it and make sure to go back to it when it comes out on on video, on, the, on, on Blu-ray, and try to recreate it or use it as a reference for future games. That's so cool. Have you um have you managed to find any time to play Metroid Dread yet? Is that on oh, the list? Yes, actually, I have been. I I uh, bought it the first day it came out. Oh, nice! Um, being a Metroid fan, so I had to do my duty. Have you have you beaten it? Have you critiqued no. all the all the sound effects? <laughs> I'm. It's a pretty hard game. <laughs> it is um, a hard game, eh? Yes, I, I very much agree. <laughs> I just got the various suit, so I'm like, oh, nice, nice. Just a couple hours in, but. They, I, I really, um, you know, the first time I played that game, I, I'll be honest, I had the knee-jerk reaction. And I was started critiquing all, all the th things in the game and what I would do differently. And I was like, these guys don't know what they're doing. But then, after spending a couple hours with it, and and uh, finally understanding what they're going for, I think I think that it did a really nice job uh, with the the soundtrack in that game and the sound design. And I think it uh, it uh, definitely has its unique identity, and it holds up well to the rest of the, the series. And I think the gameplay in that Metro Dread is is pretty fantastic. So I think they did a great job overall. It is it is an amazing game. You've you've still got a lot to look forward to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll wrap up there. But uh, if anyone wants to keep up to date with what you're doing, uh, where's the best place for them to do that? Where can they follow you? <laughs> 
I am I am like very much social media agnostics. So I don't really. <laughs> well, that's actually a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say um, probably if you want to reach out, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And sometimes I uh, I do my best to reply to people who get in touch with me. But sometimes I'm just so busy I don't have a chance to reply to everyone. But I uh, promise I'll do my best to get back to you. And I also recommend that uh, people check out Exile Sound. You've actually got some good stuff there uh, on your blog as well in terms of oh. res- resume tips. Okay. Some really, really good stuff that I, I saw and some audio tips as well. So any sound designers or musicians or any engineers, yeah, I highly recommend that you look at it. But um, yeah, hey, thanks again, Clark. I very much appreciate it. I know you're insanely busy. And um, yeah, so I, I, I appreciate you taking the time out. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. All right, well, that's the uh, show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe.